Hello, this is Adrian Stone, and I'm the host of Constitutional Cafe, a podcast for informal but scholarly conversations about important issues in constitutional law and politics worldwide. Constitutional Cafe is brought to you by a team based at the Centre of Comparative Constitutional Studies at Melbourne Law School, but we are global in origin, in our training, and most of all, in our outlook. Each episode, one of us takes a question of interest to constitutional scholars and discusses it with friends and colleagues around the world. We have a special focus on overlooked ideas and countries and regions underrepresented in global constitutional scholarship. So, settle in and enjoy. Here's our latest episode. Hello, and welcome to the Constitutional Cafe, organised by the Comparative Centre for Constitutional Studies and the Laureate Program at Melbourne Law School. My name is Scott Stevenson, and I'm a senior lecturer at the Law School, where I teach and research on topics of Australian and comparative constitutional law. This episode of the podcast is on the idea and process of reinventing yourself as a scholar. Comparative constitutional lawyers often find themselves working for a period of time or even their entire career in a legal system that is different from the one in which they were first educated and with which they are most familiar. Moving jurisdictions often prompts and sometimes requires a rethink of one's scholarship and teaching. That move, therefore, presents a range of opportunities, such as the ability to develop a deep familiarity with more than one constitutional system and to build a wider community of colleagues, as well as challenges, such as the difficulty of adjusting to a new scholarly culture and remaining abreast of developments back home. To discuss the topic, I am joined by James Folks. James is a professor and chair of foreign and international law at the University of Munster in Germany. He writes on a range of comparative constitutional law subjects and is the author of Building the Constitution, The Practice of Constitutional Interpretation in Post-Apartheid South Africa, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. Thanks so very much for joining us on the podcast, James. Oh, thanks, and thanks for having me. We really could not have a better person to talk about uh, today's subject, given that you've made the move from being a scholar in a common law jurisdiction in the global south to one in a civil law jurisdiction in the global north. Uh, Can you give us a a brief overview of where you started your legal career and the path that took you to where you are now? Sure. So um, my career path is proof that things are not always planned. So I studied law and other things in South Africa and thought that was where the career would be. And then, as you well know, Scott, I went to study in the United States, where I made the strategic career mistake of falling in love with a German, um, which meant there I spent, after that, a year in Germany, then two years in South Africa, and then now back in Germany, as we attempted the business of finding two jobs on the same continent. Uh, so it is. It has involved a fair amount of moving around. Great, thank you. So, one of the issues uh, I'd like to discuss, you know, today is the challenge of writing about a constitutional system as an outsider to that system. 
Now, South Africa is a country that has attracted a lot of attention from scholars outside of the country for its innovative constitution and the many important decisions handed down by its constitutional court. So I'd like to ask you, how is that attention viewed by South African scholars? Does that scholarship capture the salient features of South Africa's constitutional experience? Has it had any influence on the direction of scholarship within South Africa? No, so, I mean, there has been some excellent work by non-South Africans on South Africa, um, and a lot of that has been useful, and it's part of the body of work that one, one draws on. It has sometimes had a distorting effect in the sense that you know, foreign observers were often more interested in South Africa at certain points in time, that there was a great deal of international interest, for instance, in the middle of the 90s, at the moment when Mandela is becoming president, and then a lot of the foreign writers went home afterwards. Uh, and the weight of what they wrote uh, means that sometimes what happened in those years when they were there can receive too much attention, both in their scholarship and in the impact that it has. So it can have those kinds of effects, uh, certainly, but it's, it certainly had uh, an, important, an, an important impact. It's also given South Africa a reputation for a comparative engagement that it doesn't always deserve. Um, it meant that foreign scholars were often involved, and it meant that in the early years, the court was often drawing on comparative sources. It's not necessarily the case that the South African Academy is much more comparative than anybody else. At least that's my opinion. Uh, so it's there, but it, uh, it isn't some sharply different characteristic or feature of South Africa compared to other systems, I suspect. Do you think that the the two groups of scholars, South Africans and non-South Africans, are in conversation with each other? Or do you feel like it's sort of two parallel conversations that are perhaps interested in, in different lines of inquiry? Oh, it's both. So there are some non-South Africans who are very engaged and come to South Africa fairly regularly and are thoroughly part of the conversation. But being here in Germany, for instance, you discover how many Germans decided to write a doctorate or some other research project on South Africa, sometimes in German, which I'm fairly sure nobody in South Africa has ever heard of, let alone read. So it's, it's both. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Why, can I ask, why do you think South Africa has you know, been an object of interest for, for say, a German scholar? Partly it's just, it was the sexy topic of the moment, right? This is another feature of a lot of writing in the early 90s. And there's less of it today than there was back then. For instance, you know, now everybody wants to write about Poland, Hungary, for example. So, you know, there are, there are trends and fashions in, in what people like to research. But South Africa has also, I think, been a useful object of study for a certain kind of global north or generally foreign comparative scholar an English language jurisdiction, a court that doesn't write too much, so you don't have to read too much, uh, that is quite engaged in conversations that are familiar to other scholars. It draws a lot on Canada, for example, uh, and, and well-known doctrines from other places. So it's, an, it's a relatively easy place to go and study, and especially, for instance, for US Americans, it's a stark contrast. And those who study it often are studying it as, look what you can do with a constitution why don't we have socioeconomic rights in the federal constitution, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
quite a lot of U.S. American observers, I think, like to travel to South Africa as a sort of fantasy land of what it could be like if left progressives were still in charge of the U.S. Constitution. So now that you live and, and work outside of, of South Africa, you know, how, how do you stay in, in touch with your sort of home or a, a original jurisdiction? Do you still write on South Africa or on topics that relate to South Africa? And, and if so, what are the challenges with being a scholar who's writing on it, on a country from afar? So this was one of the discoveries, right? We all know that when you're researching another foreign jurisdiction, that you need in some sense to be part of that conversation and that you need to spend some time somehow hanging around with people from that system or testing ideas, or that at least that's invaluable. What I think I hadn't realized was how necessary that is in your own system as well. And that being outside your own system and therefore outside that kind of conversation is actually a serious problem as well, even though it's your own system. I'm not really sure entirely why that is. I think it's partly just that I think it's partly just that you will read a decision or read a source because you're expecting it to be discussed at work tomorrow. Uh, or that you'll find out about something because somebody else raises it in a casual conversation. And now there are very few of those conversations and the people at work will be talking about something completely different. So you miss out, I think, on uh, both sources of information and prods to acquire it. And that, I think, is true when you're studying your own system uh, from outside it, just as much as when you're trying to study somebody else's from, from overseas. So I didn't really expect that to be true, but, but it has been. Um, in addition, of course, to the fact that if you're switching systems, and indeed switching systems as dramatically as uh, I have done, then you will have years of transition and there will be a great deal that you need to learn about the system that you're now in. And that will take time away, of course, from studying your own system. So there is a reason that I've been in Germany now nearly five years and I haven't published anything particularly on South Africa in that time. It's not because I don't have things I would like to say or ideas that I, that I would like to write about. It's partly a function of time and partly that it's, it's harder to do from, from overseas. Interesting. I remember that the original reason I installed Twitter was to, was to try and re try and recreate or uh, at least observe some of the the conversations that were happening about the Australian Constitution when I was in the United States, uh, and, and realized you know although Twitter has now morphed into a, a completely different beast that the that how valuable those informal conversations were in, in again familiarizing yourself with with decisions that maybe you know wouldn't have come across your desk. Uh, but also articles and nuances to debate that are hard to have from afar and are hard to have uh, without a group of people who are also familiar with the, the same constitutional system. Uh, and so the, 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 the sort of poor substitute I fell back on was Twitter when I was overseas. And, and I think it's very right that it's very, it's very hard to replicate, re replicate those from, from afar uh, and they are valuable to sort of moving you know, you're thinking forward on a, on a system. Yeah. Yes, I have ambiguous feelings about the beast that is called Twitter. <laughs> I, I know. So I've made, I've made less use of that to this point. 
yeah, I'm not quite sure it still serves that function. Uh, there's a lot more si- uh, noise to signal uh, these days. Right. So has this move from South Africa to Germany, this move in jurisdictions, changed your view on what you th- what you think are the, the possibilities but also the limits of comparative constitutional law scholarship? So I think that's been... It's been useful to be crossing the common law civil law barrier because, of course, first I'd crossed the barrier from from South Africa to the United States. And so I thought I knew something about what it was like to be in a foreign system, um, as as you will know yourself. Uh, But it does get more different when you cross, I think, into the German system and not just for language reasons. So I think I've become more convinced of the importance both of understanding and of studying systemic features, the way that people are educated, for instance, in the legal system, the basic understanding of what it is to be a legal professional, this sort of thing. I've come to think that's more important than I did before. It's not a novel insight that you need those kinds of things to be a comparative lawyer. I now think the proportion to which you need them is much greater than I did when I arrived. And I think a fair amount of a fair amount of misunderstanding occurs in comparative conversation because people have quite different ideas about the basics and because they're not aware of them. If it's a conversation about freedom of speech, then we're all conscious we're going to talk about those things, but we're not so conscious about what our idea of good law is or what a proper legal source is or how a legal professional answers a question about law because we take that substantially for granted. And I've now bounced around enough systems that my status counts as confused. And confused is wonderful, right? We know this from behavioral psychology. If you're speaking a foreign language, you fall into fewer behavioral traps and your brain catches stuff because it's working harder. Being confused is a wonderful thing in comparative law because you take less for granted and you spot the stuff more, or at least I do, than I did when I was comfortably inside my own, my own turf. Yeah, I, I I remember that distinctively when I was an undergrad and I and I went on exchange to Denmark, and entering and studying law in in Denmark, I I sort of suddenly realised how many assumptions were built into my understanding of the law that sort of just s- silently seep in <laughs> to your to your worldview right. as you go through uh, your course. Can you expand maybe a little bit more on what you think is the the importance of particularly the the legal education system here? Is it is it acculturation? Is it professional norms? Uh, it, what, why is that? Do you think such an important factor in in how you know scholars you know ultimately end up uh, and what they end up studying? Well, let's think of. Yeah, so I mean, there are several examples I try and use with this with, with my students, but let's take one from the, the introductory common law class. Right? So we know the old idea that common law countries do case law and civil law countries do statutes, and we know it's rubbish, right? in the sense that we know that both systems do both. But that's not how the two people from their respective systems are brought up. Right? Common lawyers tend to be a bit surprised when they start practice and they realize just how much it is statutes. And German lawyers are surprised when they start their stage of practical training and they realize how much they're doing case law and how judges do actually make law. And that this old civil law fiction that they were at least told regularly in law school is not so true. 
So we know that part at least. But I think what we're not so familiar with then is that it means that for a number of years, most young lawyers from the one system or the other are told what good law looks like. And civil law lawyers are told that good law needs to be organized like a statute. So it needs to have terms that are defined, and that's a place you need to start. And if the concepts don't make sense in relation to each other, then you've just made a basic, basic mistake. And it needs to be quite systemic. And leaving things out is a bad idea. You're not supposed to leave things out of a statute. You might have to be general, but you need to be comprehensive. That's a certain way of thinking about law. Of course, the classic common law idea, leave some things undecided, future generations of judges will work it out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Completely different way of thinking about law. Now, you can take that into a complicated, long discourse about legal culture and so forth. But it also means if, one per if a person from one system or the other is starting out in a foreign system to try and answer a very basic question, the civil lawyer is going to try and look for concepts and definitions and an overall framework, which may not even exist in a common law jurisdiction because people don't care about it as much. Uh, and that sort of basic instinct is where I think a lot of problems with comparative law go, uh, arise. I think it's where a lot of things go wrong in comparative law because people are looking for something that isn't there or they're misunderstanding the significance of the fact that they don't find it um, and that that kind of conversation needs a lot more help from comparative scholars because that's something comparative scholars, of course, can master. They can understand what's going wrong or at least they can understand some of it. But I don't know that comparative law does enough work to help that conversation forward for one another or for others who do comparative law less than, than they do. Do you think that insight changes the, the level of abstraction at which we can meaningly undertake comparative constitutional law, that if we go too high at a level of abstraction, we, we risk flattening you know, differences and, and assuming that the starting point in each system is, is roughly the same or... Is that just a different type of scholarship and therefore we shouldn't, you know, impose the, the same sorts of expectations in terms of the questions, but also the answers that might come from the sort of higher level forms of, of comparison that look across, say, many systems, even in a quantity of a quality of uh, evaluative sense, any really? So that's a better question that I think I have an answer to. Um, I do think it's the case that it's, it's become clearer to me that a lot of the time the value we get from comparative scholarship is just seeing something different and it makes us think something about our own system. Again, it's not a new insight that you learn from comparative law most about your own system. But I don't think it's a coincidence that that's a kind of learning that you can enjoy without necessarily actually understanding what you've heard or understanding the significance of it to the person from whom you've heard it. Uh, so I think a lot of the time you don't need the stuff I've talked about to get value from comparative law. I do think, however, that it can become a problem if that's what we think comparative law is or if that's all it is, if it's just some differences bouncing around the room. We'll get something from that, but that probably falls short of what we all hope comparative law might be able to be. Uh, and it probably falls short of a level of rigor that we probably think might matter sometimes. And it's also, of course, it comes with the, the danger that you might, as it were, get the wrong insight, that you might hear something from another system and you might think, well, that's how they do it. Maybe I need to rethink what I'm doing. 
And then you actually, if you look a bit further down, you realize that they don't actually do it differently to you. They actually do it the same. And it would be a mistake for you to start thinking that this other thing is an option. That's what, you know, for instance, to use the same example, you know, the fact that we think about or we're told to think about civil law systems as the statutory systems, right? So the lesson for that, for the common lawyer, is meant to be you should take statutes more seriously and you should do more things with statutes, a lesson that common law has spent the last 150 years thoroughly applying. Right? But in fact, a lot of the things common law likes to do with case law, civil law does with case law too. They just talk about it less. Right? There's a lot of potential there for, for mistranslating the message. Wonderful. Thank you. So can I ask then, what types of changes to your research and even your teaching have been required or that you've undertaken since you've moved uh, jurisdictions to Germany? Well, some of the teaching changes are obvious enough, right, that I needed to learn how to make parallels and take examples that, were, that would make sense to, to Germans. Some of it was less obvious in the sense that the, the German student in front of you is expecting to be taught in a certain kind of way. And if you're not going to do that, you have to at least be conscious of the fact that you're going to be doing something that's going to be more difficult for them. Um, so you have to announce a bit more in advance what you're going to do. Uh, it's a little bit like having an explicit, an explicit methodology section in a paper, that if you don't do the standard pattern of teaching, you have to give people more time to adjust. And I certainly don't want to do the standard pattern of teaching. I'm partly here to do foreign perspectives. So you know, let's include the way in which you teach in that. But it does mean that you need to, to adjust a bit more in, in that sense. Um, as a general matter, I think I've got more interested in the question of how you translate certain information from one system to another which I think would now be true of my teaching, even if I were only ever teaching South African law in South Africa. I think I would now teach differently at home. Because, of course, if you're speaking to a bunch of new law students in a classroom, they are actually not in such a different position to teaching a group of foreign students. Um, they will, of course, know some things, but they're still young lawyers in that sense. They're still only a, a year or a few years into learning their legal system. So you may have to do more, more work to present the information in a way that can make sense to somebody who's not yet necessarily an insider to the system. Uh, and I suspect that professors get that wrong sometimes generally in teaching because, of course, they're so used to being insiders, they've forgotten what it's like not to know. And another point that's familiar enough, but teaching overseas can be very useful for, for bringing that lesson, that lesson home. But you also asked about research. Um, and I don't, what I'm about to say is not, I think, something that is true for everybody or that has to be true for everybody. But I did find myself in a position where most of the things in which my students were interested and most of the things that people around me were interested in was not my home system, right? People are interested enough in South Africa, but only together with perhaps 40 other countries that rank about as important in their heads as South Africa does. And they're mostly interested in higher profile common law jurisdictions. If I'm teaching foreign law, South Africa is further down the list than quite a number of other common law places. And so in some ways, that's an opportunity, or at least I chose to take it to be an opportunity. 
to play around at least at being a comparative lawyer without a home system. To not try and be somebody who starts from one country and then compares other countries to that country, but instead to try and just look at countries. Uh, it's a, a fairly radical thing to do in the sense that most lawyers never get the opportunity to do it, that everybody does get tied to their home system or to a couple. But once you've studied in two systems, plus the people you're teaching want to know about, say, three or four other systems besides those two, plus you're yourself in a different system again, and that their system is now another one on the list, and that if you're in Germany, of course, you will automatically be drawing comparisons to France and to Italy sometimes and to Spain, and you'll have European overlaps and so forth. And now you're at 10 systems, and the idea of being sort of stuck in one of them or doing only two of them is absurd. And that's potentially intimidating, and it can be exhausting, but it's also liberating. As a very, in a very practical matter, how, how do you approach that then? As in, to me, that jumps out as very intimidating. Is there sort of a, a way in which you've developed a system to approaching that, or is it very ad hoc, and, and it sort of just depends on the project that you're working on in terms of which jurisdictions you might focus on more than others, but also how you go about the process of obtaining the, the sort of degree of knowledge that you feel comfortable enough to then write something about it? Well, you continue to make the flattering assumption that there's too much system here, uh, just as you did with the, the career plan itself. No, it's, it's, it is very ad hoc. It has a lot to do with the panicked moment that you need to teach subject X next week, and you need to teach it to a group of Germans who will have a different set of countries that they're thinking about than you, and they may well know more about those countries than you do, at least now, and you've got seven days to close the gap, uh, which is not good for personal levels of cortisol, but it is a very good learning experience. Uh, but I also think it's, I think it's probably the case that we, we tend to think that sort of thing is more intimidating than it is. And we think that for a perfectly good reason, because of course, sometimes the idea of asking a legal question and answering it in 10 jurisdictions is a really difficult and really risky thing to do. And that's especially the case if we're asking a how does it really work kind of comparative law question where you can't just go and look up a black letter rule. But I think we underestimate how often there are accessible answers to questions that you can find out in 10 or 20 legal systems without actually it taking that much time. Um, and of course, that implies a certain level of access to library resources and the like, of course, but most comparative lawyers um, have at least some of that. And I think we are sometimes a little bit too slow to ask questions broadly for that reason. But the other thing that I think it's, that it's made it easier is that there, is a, there can be a difficulty where you say, here are the two or the four countries that I know. I work on those countries. And that means that any question I have, I answer in relation to those countries, which means that I have picked the countries which are most interesting for that question only by coincidence. Whereas if you're willing to work with 12 or 15 countries in your head, then you can pick the three or four that make most sense for a question and ignore the others. And then you're still only researching three or four countries, hard researching, but it's on the basis of a broad background knowledge of a larger number. Uh, and that can be tremendously useful, I think, uh, for how you do things like case selection. Absolutely. Does this 
development of uh, a set of jurisdictions where you have a background knowledge that assists you with case selection and helps you get to the right set uh, of examples to study a particular question or phenomenon. Does any of does that sort of shift uh, away from perhaps a, a more common uh, approach to comparative constitutional scholarship? Do you think that sheds any light on the missteps that sometimes occur uh, in the field of comparative constitutional law? Well, I think I, I think the only I think the only really straightforward answer I have to that question is in some ways the point that I've just made, that what we talk about as comparative law for most people is a couple of legal systems that they know. And they're comparative in that they work in more than one system, but not necessarily comparative in the sense of being global um, or in the sense of taking on anything that approaches a global set of countries. And I think that has something to do with what we expect from comparative law uh, rightly, that is to say, some of it is about the limits to how many countries and languages and so forth you can learn. And partly there, I just get, if you like, an artificial advantage by being forced to operate in a very foreign jurisdiction and being constantly exposed to a set of examples that are not mine, which means that simply by being here, I get exposed to four or five systems, none of which were mine to start with. And when you do it that way, it's easy to get to 10. Whereas it's much harder to do that, of course, if you're inside your own bubble uh, or you're inside your home system or close to it. So that's certainly, uh, that's certainly uh, an advantage that, that one has. Um, I think it's something that may be starting to change because of how many younger, especially scholars there are, who are writing in English about a wider range of jurisdictions who are also writing for one another. And so they tend to draw more than was true even 20 years ago on a common framework or a common set of questions or a common set of examples. So I think this is something that's going to change. But I do think that comparative law has been quite regional and has been locked in quite familiar kinds of comparisons. And I think that's made us think that that's what comparative law needs to be or should be that a good comparative lawyer should not step outside four systems, right? How many small N studies do you know that have more, more than four countries in them? And I think we've been told that's necessary, and it sometimes is, but I suspect that it sometimes increasingly is not. You mentioned earlier the, the fact that you have access to, to resources that sort of allow you to engage in, in this form of comparative study. And we often come across, or we're often faced uh, with the fact that most comparative constitutional law scholars have to some extent led a comparative life, as in that they have lived uh, or, and worked in, in at least two, if not many systems. Do you think that uh, that fact, uh, the need to access resources, the fact that uh, it often come uh, an interest in this area often comes from having lived in many countries, means that uh, the opportunities to access the discipline or to um, gain a sufficient level of interest in the discipline is somewhat limited. Uh, that 
uh, this makes it more difficult to hear voices from the global south or for them to participate in debates? So, yes, certainly, right? So, for instance, it's you know, the, the point that I just made about the, the younger generation of comparative scholars writing in English, right? A tremendous amount of that is in people's first books, you know, the books turned out of doctorates, most of which the realities of law publishing being what they are, are what, $60, $90, right? If you're in a country like South Africa, let alone poorer countries in Africa, you will never have access to most of those books. It's just utterly guaranteed. Um, and the same is true, of course, for things like research databases. Um, so, yes, I completely agree that this is a formidable barrier. And it's also true that if we're talking about things like personal connections or spending time overseas, that that too becomes a problem. Um, although I do think it's fair to say that um, for at least those who have access to scholarships and the like, it's another place where Global South scholars can have an advantage in that it is common for them to do postgraduate study outside their home systems and perhaps more common than for somebody who comes from, from Germany or from the United States who are much more likely to study at home. So there is some of that, but of course, for many people, that's not a realistic, uh, a realistic thing. Um, I think the, the, the most interesting answer to the, the question, I mean, the thing I've just said is important, but I think it's well known. Um, but I think the most interesting answer is one about expectations and about what it is, what, what you're supposed to do as a legal scholar. So I don't, you're right, I think it's not surprising that lots of people end up studying a particular country because they happen to know the language or because they have a romantic connection, right? I wouldn't be in Germany without that kind of connection um, or something of that nature. And I think what that really is, is a point about uh, an artificial substitute for the idea that being a good lawyer means that you know about jurisdiction X. So, you know, if you go back to late 19th century United States, a good lawyer knows German. A good lawyer is familiar with the German system as one of the most influential systems in the world, as they will be familiar with the UK system, for instance. Right? That certainly disappeared, that idea that you're supposed to know major legal systems. People are much more likely to know their own family uh, rather than simply the systems that are most important in the world globally judged. And it's professionally expected that a lawyer, you know, a law professor standing in front of a class who gets asked a question about a really important country, if they don't know the answer, they sort of say, well, I don't. And that's good, that's honest, but it also conveys the idea that it's professionally responsible not to have that knowledge, that it's just fine not to have that knowledge. And in that sense, I think we don't expect many of our lawyers to be as comparative as perhaps we should that we think that there are specialist comparativists and everybody else gets to be a comparative idiot and that that's okay, right? Um, and I'm not so sure that that is. It's something, uh, as a last remark on this, it's something that uh, is striking to me here in Germany where what I've just said is perhaps less true than many other places. That a comparative law class in the United States has 10 people in it or 15. And my introduction to common law class here has more than 200. And that's not because of me, right? That's because there's such a serious interest in other systems and such a sense that you need, professionally speaking, to be competent in those other systems. That, I suspect, is sometimes missing from the way in which we teach young lawyers uh, how, to do, how to do law in general. 
do you think that interest in comparative scholarship or other systems at the student level in Germany is also reflected at the at the academic level uh, uh, among professors, or is that quite a quite a difference in terms of you know it's for professional reasons rather than for scholarly reasons that people are interested in other systems in Germany? Well, I mean, I think this is a relatively new phenomenon, and it is certainly expanding, right? So the internationalization of, of German universities is, a, in many ways, a recent phenomenon. Um, and it's certainly still a work in progress. Yes, there are people who do comparative scholarship here. Um, certainly, there are lots of comparative scholars out there, and it's not uncommon for one of those countries to be the UK as a common law system, or to be the US, as with many other places. Um, so there is some basis for it in that sense. But I don't think that accounts for how large the classes are, because you could say the same thing about the US, for instance, and the classes are 10% of the size. So I think, it's, I think there is a different understanding of, of what it is to, uh, to be a legal professional. And I've, I'm in two minds about it, of course, because we all know that comparative law is not what most lawyers do in the end. We're all familiar with the idea that legal education is meant to prepare you to be a practicing lawyer in your own system. And so comparative law does have that sense of a, a nice to have or an add on. Um, and that therefore it might sound idealistic or unrealistic or even just wrong to start talking about more comparative law as professionally responsible. The only thing that has made me wonder about that a little bit is that we're all familiar with the fact that what you get taught in law school isn't necessarily that helpful when you get into practice and that it's not uncommon to be told, you know, first thing, forget what you were told in law school or what you did in your introductory class is no use to you here, go home and study this. We're all familiar with the idea that law school doesn't actually prepare you for practice in that sense, that it's trying to make you into a certain kind of thinker rather than to actually give you the specific black letter knowledge to go and be a practicing lawyer in a particular area, in which case, what kind of thinker do we think you need to be? Right? What, what use are we making of those few really unusual years in a lawyer's life at university where you don't have to be tied to the particular expectations of practice? And why isn't that a time when we do a more global overview of what law is around the world uh, or how different people think about law around the world? So I think there may be an opportunity at least for thinking about what foundational legal education is perhaps more than we've done. Um, and that's something I think I've gained from, from being here and seeing how people think about it here. That answer and, and particularly uh, the, the start of it m made me think that a common experience uh, among comparative constitutional scholars, both as researchers and teachers, is how much the United States is sort of uh, orients a, a lot of the comparison, even if it is only the starting point or one of many systems. It, in some ways, it's it's this point that many scholars actually have in common is that that is one of the comparators that that's brought into the conversation. Do you think that ultimately is is a help, a hindrance, or something you know in, entirely different? Uh, I you know myself. I've always thought that in some ways it can actually be helpful, even if we are all comparing ourselves to the United States for slightly different reasons. It does actually, you know, anchor some of the conversations that otherwise might might be very difficult to have. But of course, it, it does have its downsides as well. 
And the other thing that always struck me uh, about about the sort of role the United States plays in scholarship is that a lot of people often get very defensive when United States scholars write about their home country uh, and they, you know, worry about oversimplification and so forth. Uh, but then I always can't help but think that a lot of us perhaps are committing the same <laughs> misdemeanor against the United States when we include it. You know, as we've both sort of studied in the United States, it's a very, very complex, nuanced system. Uh, it's very hard to reduce uh, to, uh, you know, an article um, bite-sized uh, um, you know, analysis. So I'm just wondering what you think of its, you know, role and why, you know, when you get up in a classroom, it's one of them, you know, the the system that students want to know about, but also often what we're drawn to in our writings. So I think here this is another place where I've, uh, where moving to Germany has given me a somewhat unexpected boost, because one of because of course not only is it the system that most people are interested in above all here, but also because you have to teach it from the beginning, of course, to a German student. Right? I teach introductory courses in the US, or that's the kind of question that you get asked. And I think that means that I'm forced to do it in a slightly different way to the way most comparative lawyers do it. Right? Most comparative lawyers speak the US as a second constitutional language, and they need to know enough about it to be able to join in a relatively high-level comparative law conversation, which means being familiar with some names and some examples and having the shared experience of having read the Federalist Papers um, possibly with a hangover at a certain point in grad school. Right? And that means, I think, that quite a lot of people speak the US as a second constitutional language badly. Uh, as you say, a complex system with a great deal to it. And that few people outside the US actually study it. They draw upon it and mention it all the time. But studying it really right, is uncommon, as uncommon as it is to have a US scholar studying intensively a foreign system to them. It, it happens uh, probably even less than that because there are fewer people who say something like the U.S. needs to be more studied. We need to fulfill this, fill this neglected gap, right? Of course, it's not understudied. So it, we go elsewhere. Um, so I think, I've, I think it's the case that we don't understand the U.S. nearly as well as we should given how often we use it. Um, and I think it's the case that we believe that you can be quite rude about the US, that it plays the role as, as the crazy Yanks, that it's about originalism and absolutist approaches to free speech and other things that are weird and different. And that's not a very useful comparative conversation uh, and not always a very useful role to be having. Interesting. Thanks, James. So one last question uh, and then I'll let you go. Has your move from South Africa through the United States to Germany changed your view on the global north-south divide you know, in, the in the comparative constitutional community or in comparative constitutional law scholarship? Is it more, is it less significant than it sometimes assumed to be? I think it's made it even clearer than it was to me before how big the gap can be in terms of things like resources. Uh, that I've now been inside a number of the systems enough to know how the amounts of money are just utterly different and the ideas of what kind of support you have as, as a researcher or as a professor is just utterly different. Um, that, for instance, somebody like a US professor assumes an enormous amount of money will be around. Somebody like a German professor assumes that they will have 
eight or 10 student assistants would be a, a very standard kind of number to have working for you. And that when we look at what, that, what those kinds of resources add up to, that certain kinds of things can become possible in those systems that are not possible without them. So that sort of divide is hugely, hugely important. Um, and certainly it's also true, and again, this is not a novel point, that there is a great deal of chauvinism and stereotyping that goes on. Although it does go on in both directions. The South stereotypes the North just as much as the North does the South, and probably more so, right? Because Germans and Americans are more politically correct when they're talking about the Global South than Global Southerners are when they are doing the reverse. As a conceptual category that has substantive meaning, as a category about one way in which the North does law and another way in which the South does law, I've never really thought it was a serious category, and I think that more and more the longer I am here and the longer I look at it. Um, I don't think it's a useful conceptual category really at all, except in that institutional resource-based way. And even that's, of course, a fraying category. Uh, if you think about the places that have, that have money, don't necessarily map very neatly onto that divide anymore. So I've become very suspicious of it as, as a category. It has a great deal to do, I think, with the US point that you mentioned. Right? For many people in the South, the global North equals the US federal system as not very well understood. And that's a terrible way to do comparative scholarship. Um, and there are so many other global North systems which would rebut pretty much any point people like to make about what characterizes the North and what characterizes the South. So I'm a substantial skeptic about that. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, James. This has been oh, a thank you. real treat. Uh, and uh, so thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us today. Sure, thanks for the invitation. Yeah. This conversation with James has raised, I think, three crucial points about the opportunities and challenges of reinventing yourself as a comparative constitutional law scholar. The first is about the power of trends in scholarship and the need to be careful about following them. I think we've seen uh, that they can be extremely useful in creating points of connection between us as scholars and for building uh, communities around shared research concerns, but that they should also be a cause for humility. Our work may be more temporally and geographically limited than we might otherwise think. The second point is the enduring relevance of traditional distinctions in comparative scholarship. Although the emergence of constitutional law courts and transnational engagement of judges, for example, are sometimes thought to break down the divide between civil and common law systems, as James has suggested, the divide continues to operate and assert its power at a deeper level uh, about where we look, for instance, for solutions to problems as lawyers in each type of system and how we order our thinking. The third point is to take advantage of the circumstances in which you find yourself. If you end up in a jurisdiction in which you did not expect to be, it is possible to treat that uh, as an opportunity to try bold new approaches to research and writing. For example, to let the problem rather than the jurisdiction drive the way in which you undertake comparison. 
and that you might be surprised by the results of these bold approaches. Finally, in every podcast episode, we ask our guests for a recommendation for further reading if you are interested in the topic we've discussed. James has suggested two brilliant pieces where experienced comparativists have tried to explain how a system, either theirs or someone else's, teaches and does law, uh, especially with a focus on the unwritten rules, practices and habits that drive that system. To that end, he suggests Mersion Damaskas, a continental lawyer in an American law school, Trials and Tribulations of Adjustment, which you can find in the um, Pennsylvania Law Review, and James Gordley, Mere Brilliance, the Recruitment of Law Professors in the United States, which you can find in the American Journal of Comparative Law. I highly recommend both pieces to you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If the recommendations from our guests interest you, you'll find all the information you need at our partner blog run by the International Association of Constitutional Law. Just go to blog-iacl-aidc.org. That's blog-iacl-aidc.org. And follow the links to Constitutional Cafe. This podcast comes to you from the Centre for Comparative Constitutional Studies at Melbourne Law School, and we're supported by the Australian Research Council through the Laureate Program in Comparative Constitutional Law. See you next time.